This is the ATP Tennis Radio Podcast. on his toes, Pospisil, he's saying, I'm okay. I've just saved three match points. Juice, five, six. Serves out wide, forehand up the line and deep. Cross court backhand from Pospisil. Slice from Pospisil up the line to the forehand cross court from Chilic. Forehand cross court, Pospisil. Into the centre of the court, the forehand goes Chilic. Clip stop on it, Pospisil. Up the line with the backhand goes Chilic. Forehand from Chilic up the other wing. Backhand down the line from Pospisil. Forehand cross court from Chilic. Forehand snap cross court. He's dictating Chilic, but can he come through on top? Forehand cross court. The defence from Pospisil goes cross court with the forehand. Forehand cross court. Pospisil goes down the line with the forehand. The backhand slice from Chilic is deep. How much running is Pospisil doing? Backhand cross court from Chilic. Slice down the line from Pospisil. Forehand cross court from Chilic. Up the line, he slips Pospisil. Regains himself and slices down the centre of the court. The Forehand from Chilich, the backhand hooked up cross court, the inside in from Chilich, the forehand cross court from oh, the winner! Got to be kidding me! How on earth has he pulled that one off? He was running on fumes there at the end of that rally. <laughs> he drops his racket, his arms are wide, he smiles, the Canadian flags fly, and he high fives the spectators! That was just incredible. That is going to go down as point of the year. It is without doubt one of our favourite commentary moments so far from our three years of live coverage on ATP Tennis Radio. And this week, I'm delighted to say that we are joined by the star of that clip, Canada's Vasek Pospisil. I'm Seb Lozier, and earlier in the week, I spoke with Vasek about the tour getting back underway, his new job during lockdown, co-presenting the ATP WTA Tennis United show where he's interviewed many of his co-players. We talked about his other role on the ATP Player Council and a revolutionary new business venture he's also been getting off the ground. Heaven only knows where he's found the time. But we started with tennis and the year he was having before it all stopped with two top 10 wins against David Goffin and Daniel Medvedev, a doubles title in Marseille and a final in Montpellier. It's fair to say he was on fire. By the end of last year, I was really hitting my stride. I think I, I mean, I won like 23 out of 26 matches or something. And then at the beginning of this year, I was uh, kind of felt like I was unstoppable. So that definitely was, was bad timing. But um, at the same time, I feel pretty confident that I can get back to where I, I left off. And I guess, uh, fortunately, I kept myself pretty busy during, during COVID. And so I, I uh, you know, was distracted, which was good. Didn't, uh, you know, think too much about, about uh, tennis and where you know, what could have been and how well I was playing and just got, got busy with some other projects. To put it in context, a second singles final of your career in Montpellier after the timeout you'd had with injury last year. Talk to me about how hard you'd worked um, last year and in the off-season to get back to that kind of level. Yeah, I worked extremely hard. I mean, I, I mean, obviously, anytime you, you come back from a major injury, it, uh, you know, it sets you back. You kind of feel like you're at rock bottom. I mean, I gained a bunch of weight and I was, you know, super out of shape and suddenly coming back with all these question marks where they're, you know, wondering if I'd be able to compete at the high level. So obviously that takes, you know, a lot of hard work and dedication to, to get back to playing at, at the level that I did. But, but uh, I think, you know, I, more than anything, I think I just came back with a, a little bit of a different mindset and I was more relaxed on the court. 
you know, I didn't, didn't, uh, it was really just enjoying my time out there. I think that translated into better performance. And, and actually, to be honest, the, the surgery just really, really did wonders for me because I I'd struggled with my back for the last five, six years since I had my initial injury in 2014. And I kind of just took it as, as something that, that is like normal that you have to deal with and that every player deals with. And I didn't really realize that, you know, it was a real issue because after the surgery, I mean, I, I went six, seven months without any issues with my back, which prior to the surgery, I mean, I couldn't go more than three or four weeks without some issues. So it was definitely uh, a very nice surprise. I really want to ask you about your kind of approach, your your mental approach to injury a, a little later, if you'll let me. But first of all, you, you had a, well, let, let's call it a, a rescue remedy in Montpellier. Maple syrup, um, you know, made an entrance to, and then it made a big entrance on social media. Remind us all what happened. Yeah, I mean, that was, it was so funny because I, I had so many guys message me after that, like, oh, that was staged or, oh, that was good job like good PR move whatever and it was so funny because at the time like I didn't think anything of it I I obviously I had a really great week and you know making the finals I I, I just went through my whole I mean I, I went through all of my energy gel so I didn't have anything for energy for the final and I was and I was going up against Gael Monfils which obviously you're gonna need some energy to win that, <laughs> to win that one so so I uh I was like okay no big deal I'll just go and go to the pharmacy and and get some some you know for one match I'll just get some some energy gels at a, at a French pharmacy somewhere and but everything is closed on Sundays in in France so uh suddenly I was I was stranded and and didn't know what to do and then my my physio and I were brainstorming and we we're like oh well why don't I just just use you know maple syrup and and uh and it's like yeah sure and then so then I figured okay well I'll, I'll pour it in a bottle uh and drink it straight out of a bottle but then I was like ah well you know what like I'll, I'll just drink it straight out of the container because it'll just get messy if I have to pour it back and then and then fast forward a couple hours and uh yeah and then i i didn't realize uh uh you know obviously that that it would go viral or anything until until it did and and i was uh then I, it was it was actually after i you know saw the video that i realized it was pretty hilarious that that i'm a canadian and drinking maple syrup on changeover <laughs> didn't occur to me at the time you literally couldn't have looked more canadian and you have it in your coffee as well i do i'm actually drinking coffee right now and i have maple syrup in it <laughs> it was incredible i mean you really did enjoy Europe didn't you you beat Daniel Medvedev in Rotterdam you lost the eventual champion Steph Tsitsipas in Marseille where you also won the doubles um with with Nico Mau um did you get adopted that week as a as a kind of French son did, did it feel like that I always had really good support uh there I felt like the, the crowd always gets behind me which is super nice and I've always felt really comfortable playing, playing in France over the years even from from my junior year so I don't know what it is about about playing there. I mean, I also had a French coach for four years, so uh, maybe just spending a little bit of time in in south of France and Paris, and maybe I just maybe there's a little bit of that, uh, you know, that played a role as well. I'm not sure, but I definitely feel very comfortable playing uh, in front of the French crowds. So maybe hope, I'm sure that had an impact as well. Uh, alongside Nico, who, um, well, you've had lots of wonderful doubles partners, but what's it like to play with him? I've, I've always wondered. I love playing with with Mahoud. He's, uh, I think he's the best doubles player uh, in the world. I think his his volleys are just insane, and we've played together two times and won two tournaments. So I, I we we have a we have a, we kind of joked around that we should be playing together more often. But it's he he's one of those guys that that just really um, really makes you feel comfortable out there. You know, he's he's just. If you're a little bit off your game, he's just so solid. He's he's a rock, and he's and his personality is great. He's a real team team guy. He's very positive. 
just this uh, very optimistic guy, and, and it's just good to have a doubles partner that's that has that kind of a, an attitude and mentality. So I think that's one of the reasons why he's just so so great to play with. So whenever I can play with him, I will. And but uh, obviously, I know he has he has a partner, and my my doubles ranking is is not quite there right now. But but uh, I think he's he's the best uh, doubles player in the world. Well, you have another doubles partner now, anyway, don't you? Uh, in Bethany Matek Sands D- during lockdown, this whole thing's taken off. Um, Tennis United, the joint production between ATP and WTA. I wanted to talk to you about that anyway, so it's the perfect time. Um, how did that all come about? Yeah, well, you know what? It was uh, the beginning of, of the lockdown. The ATP contacted me and said, hey, we want to do a joint show with WTA. And, and would you be willing, would you like to, to host the show? And so I, I honestly, at the time, I, I you know, had 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 time on my hands uh, and, you know, I was working on projects, but I thought, well, this would be really cool. This would be really cool to do. This would be fun. And, and so that was it. And I just said, yeah, sure, let's do it. And, and then uh, after the first few episodes, I started to, you know, I, I really enjoyed it and, and it just kind of grew from there. And I think we ended up doing 18, 18 episodes, maybe more to, more to come now. I know we're having a, a few weeks, a few weeks off right now as the tour gets started, but, but uh, I really enjoyed it. We had some, some really cool guests. So, um, yeah, it was it was a great time. Uh, it was a great way to sp- to spend some of this COVID time, for sure. In terms of the job of broadcasting, just and the simple thing of actually hosting the show, what what have you? I guess what have you enjoyed and what have you learned from doing that? I learned it's pretty. It's not so easy. <laughs> <laughs> I learned it's tough, and I learned it's good to have a good production team behind you because I feel like uh, the Tennis United team always makes such a great show out of uh, our interviews and. Even I'm just like, oh my god, I did a terrible job, and then I see the video, and I'm like, wow, that's actually fantastic. And <laughs> so I feel, so I learned you need to have a good production team. I, I say that's that's the number one thing. But no, but honestly, you have to enjoy, you know, being. You have to be a little bit of a social butterfly too. I think. I think Bethany is an incredible co-host. She's she's been kind of the anchor of the show, and and uh, without her, I'm I'm not sure uh, Tennis United. Well, definitely wouldn't be what it is. So I know it's gotten some great responses, and. Uh, but I have to give most of that credit for to Bethany. She's been incredible. We'll hear from Robin Soderling and Canadian sporting legends Wayne Gretzky and Steve Nash later, a little later. But in terms of your tennis peers, are there any are there any that kind of stick out in your memory of you know just great chats? I mean, we had some amazing guests. Uh, I, I always you know we had Novak. Uh, he, he was he was a guest on our show, and so we got into talking about nutrition and. I mean, it was cool chatting with Edberg and Vlander and actually Safin, who's who's uh, a bit of an idol of mine. He's just he's the man. So that was really cool. And and as you as you mentioned, I mean, the highlight for me was definitely uh, you know the interview with Steve Nash and, and Gretzky. I mean, those are you know two idols of mine. And actually, I'm I'm quite good friends with with Steve. So it was really cool to to have him to have him on the show and give a, a little bit of a different different perspective from another you know different different athletes different different sports and two great champions and so there's so many similarities uh you know be- between them and and someone like Novak and so it's just really cool to to have uh have their perspective and, and have them on the show and on nutrition with Novak is it a heated debate in terms of because I know he, he's he's vegan isn't he and you're a pescatarian do you do you kind of debate the relative merits of what you do <laughs> and no you know what like he is so awesome and I, I mean I I I, I'm honestly like I, I've changed my diet largely due to him. I haven't gone all the way. I haven't gone all the way, but I went gluten free when he did. And then, you know, I'm, I'm eating really well. I haven't gone quite to, to his, 
uh, extreme, but maybe it's not even an extreme. It's just the, the perspective, right? That, that you think, I think who knows, maybe I've already kind of gone a little bit in, in that direction. I remember I started eating fish just once a day and I was uh, vegan for, for lunch. And uh, so I had, I had played around with that. So who knows, maybe we'll have this conversation in six months and, and I'll be eating the same way as Novak, especially because I've, I'm, I'm with him on the council and we, we talk on a, on a weekly basis. So maybe he'll, he'll influence me, but we were actually chatting about um, intermittent fasting and he was, he was intermittent fasting and training at the same time, which I found to be really interesting. And so I, I try that as well. I was trying it at the same time and and uh, so it's always it's always interesting having these kinds of conversations with uh you know champions like like Novak because you're always trying to find that edge and and um, change something or improve your diet or your fitness routines or the way you train. So anytime you can get any kind of insight on what the top guys are doing, it's always um, it's always pretty cool. Uh, just on the gluten free thing, I'm interested. How, how does that help? I mean, do you, do you notice a difference in how you feel? I just tried it because I was curious. I started feeling better for sure, but it was it was also just because I, I cut out bread, right? I cut out bread and pasta. So it's hard to know really if it was cutting out the bread and the pasta or, or the gluten itself or or whatever whatever it was. So obviously I guess that's the main the main difference or the main ingredient in those, but I just felt better. It wasn't even anything it wasn't a, a dietary like a restriction or anything. And I don't know how much of it was placebo or how much of it was was real, but I, I definitely felt lighter and felt better so I just stuck to it and it's I've been I mean that was in 2000 I think that was 2014 that I made that change so I've, I've been pretty much gluten-free you know when in competition obviously during the last four months I've been pretty flexible and I've been eating pretty much everything but uh, the last six years on tour I've, I've been gluten-free and and yeah it, it's definitely felt better we said you you like to keep yourself busy um so you're, you're a tennis player you've been a broadcaster you're on the player council you You've also set up a new company in all this. I mean, I don't know where you find the time, but t- talk to us ab- talk to us about what you've been doing. Yeah, so for, for the last year or so, I uh, co-founded a, a functional mushroom company. It's called Hikati with two co-founders. So we actually just launched our first product yesterday. Uh, it's, a, it's a functional mushroom blend. It's basically a performance-based dietary supplement, and there's incredible health benefits uh, that these functional mushrooms have, cardiovascular health, anti-anxiety, anti-stress, uh, immune system support, anti-inflammation. I mean, there, there's, it's pretty impressive. I mean, 11 of the top 50 superfoods are in the world are, are mushrooms. And, you know, it's, it's been a, a huge trend, or I would say mainstream in, in, in Asia for almost thousands of years. And, and it's really only coming to North America now slowly. And so I've, I've been taking I've been taking functional mushrooms for the last year and a half since my surgery. Um, and I've just felt, you know, incredible benefits and and then this idea just came up and and obviously uh you know it's a product that i really believe in and and so i i basically decided to, to start uh, my my own uh company that's how much i believed in the product when i started taking it and how great i felt so uh yeah it's it's pretty exciting it's um as i said we just launched yesterday at hikati.com so you can check it out and and uh you know learn more more about it and uh yeah so it's 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 pretty cool it's been very exciting times and very busy as well who knew about functional mushrooms where do they come from well they grow in forest i mean they just grow in a forest uh i mean they're not your typical mushrooms so they're not like they do grow obviously in you know all around you know in, in the forest north america wherever all around the world but they're not your typical mushrooms they're not mushrooms that you put in your pasta or your or your soups although you can do that um but they, they just have very very powerful 
health benefits and, and uh, properties that, that are just very, very good for you, which, as I said, in Chinese medicine, they've been using it for thousands of years. And, you know, it's been it's been slowly coming to North America. I mean, if you ask someone, you know, that's very health conscious, they'll, they'll most likely know about, about them and maybe even take supplements, functional mushroom supplements, but it hasn't quite gone mainstream yet, but I really believe it, it will very soon. So we started, I think at the right time and we have a, you know, a, a premium brand where we're, uh, homegrown in North America, you know, our, our supply chain is, is out of Southern California. So uh, a lot of the co- other companies, competing companies grow their mushrooms in China where the soil can be toxic and, and not great. So ours are organic uh, in North America, the top quality, because obviously as an athlete, you always want to put the best ingredients into your body. So that that's just uh, something that we, we really, really focused on. And it's been, as I said, it's been exciting and I, I'm looking forward to you know, to have uh, our customers uh, try the product and, and hopefully feel the benefits. Fascinating. So that's hecate.com, H-E-K-A-T-E.com. Is that right? That's right. Yes. And, and listening to other interviews or other chats you've, you've had, you seem to be very big on working hard and using your time well. I mean, this idea of sort of purposeful productivity, you know, has this been just another case for you, I guess, of just wanting to use your time well and, and have fun as well? Yeah, you've done your research. <laughs> yeah, I do. I do. Yeah, I do talk about that. I, I, I'm a big believer in being efficient and uh, using your time wisely. And, you know, it's, it's what my dad always told me, actually, when I was when I was a kid, too, is every time I stepped on the court, he, he always wanted me to have a purpose with what I was doing and never, um, you know, and that's what I what I tell juniors now or kids, if they ask me you know, for, for advice or one one piece of advice, I'll just say, well, every time you step on the tennis court, don't just be there and, and hit balls around, but but actually try to work on something and improve. So I think I've I've kind of adapted that taken that into everything I do in my life I don't like unless unless I'm just trying to you know have a break or vacation or or take some time away from from working um when I am working I don't like it I don't like it to be inefficient so I think that's probably um uh something that that my my dad uh had taught me at it from a young age also a member of the ATP player council as, as we've said um how busy has this period been for you in terms of that role now that, that the tour is starting up again, uh, it's definitely getting a lot busier um, because, you know, now we're, we're seeing what the state of tennis is and we have a lot more feedback and, um, you know, U.S. Open is coming, is just around the corner. So now it's getting busy. But during the first few months of uh, COVID, actually, the player council, you know, involvement was a lot, was significantly less than it was the last 18 months. Around that time, we spoke um, with ATP chairman Andre Gaudenzi, who was pretty new in the role. Um, it was fa- fascinating chat. He gave us so much of his time and he was talking about his vision for, I guess, all of tennis, in- including the ATP tour and the WTA tour kind of coming together more. I was wondering how much, you know, you, you had or how, how, how much consulted you'd been in that or how much you'd fed into that or your, your thoughts on that. So uh, Andrea Gadenzi and, and uh, Massimo uh, Calvelli, um, they actually approached us in January when they first got the roles and in Aussie Open, they, they approached me and the council with their vision. And they also had a, had a brief outline of it for all the players at the general meeting. And, and um, so we didn't really give much feedback. I mean, this was, this was fully their, their initiative and their vision um, that they brought to us. And, and 
ultimately we we liked it i mean the whole council w- was in favor of it we approved it we we thought it was we liked where they were heading with with um with that vision and and obviously we knew it would be very difficult to execute so they said hey give us give us you know give us some time to, to execute this vision but it was great I, I and obviously now i'm now because of you know the coronavirus and they've been put in a, in a very difficult situation and and one where obviously there's tons of criticism because but that's just natural because, i mean how and they they just kind of went right into you know shark infested waters right from the start so it's, i give them a lot of credit especially early on i mean to deal with a global pandemic at your first few months uh, on the job is is not easy i mean those are the months you you really are trying to just get your feet wet and really understand how everything is is running and so i i, I can't imagine how difficult it's been uh, for them but i think they've done they've done a good job and and obviously now, hopefully, as the tour starts up, they, they can refocus their energy on, on the vision that they had for tennis. I was also fascinated, Vasek, to, uh, to ask you to take us into the room. I mean, obviously, you can't talk in details because there are things that you can't talk about. But just in terms of the dynamic, sitting around a table with Roger Federer, Novak Djokovic and Rafa Nadal, which obviously wasn't the case until last year when Federer and Nadal both came back on. How, how, what is that like and how much did it change when those two guys join the rest of you it's pretty amazing uh like experience i mean i i uh i remember it, it was at aussie open when they first joined i think we had our first council meeting in person and i was actually sitting it was uh it was me and to my left it was novak to my right roger and then nadal was right beside him so we were and i was i was kind of looking i was like oh wow like right in between the three of the greatest athletes let alone tennis players of all time so I thought that was really cool. I mean, that as as you know, someone that idolized Federer growing up, and 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 obviously these are three incredible athletes to be to be involved uh, in the council with them is pretty cool. And I think the dynamic is pretty interesting because you have, um, you know, obviously these are three very strong individuals. Um, you know, they have strong opinions as we all do on the council. Uh, but but for sure, when you know you have three guys come in and, and with the positions that they come in, it can be challenging. But at the same time, they work very well together. They're very open-minded. Um, Novak's been incredible. I mean, I've spent most most of my time with, with Novak because he was on, I was on the council with him from, from day one when I joined. So uh, we just collaborated the most. And then, you know, and, and Roger, when he came on, he brought a you know, great perspective and he's, you know, super smart guy and very open-minded. So it's been yeah, it's been a very cool, very cool experience. That's for sure. A great learning experience for me and, and very, very interesting uh, to see those three uh, communicate at the table. Basit, we've been talking for, what, half an hour. We haven't even mentioned return to tennis yet, um, which which is imminent, we all hope. Um, in fact, this podcast will go out for the first time on Sunday, which would have been Toronto Masters final day. And before we get on to talking about the tennis, we will um, be seeing. I I wanted to ask you about Toronto. I was looking forward to being there for the first time this year, um, but you must have been really sad to to miss that one. Oh, absolutely. I mean, you know, Rogers Cup, Masters event here in Canada, that's it's every Canadian's favorite tournament. I mean, that was my my breakthrough event uh, in Montreal in 2013. Uh, when I, you know, just kind of came out of nowhere onto the scene, and it was such an a such an emotional week for me. Uh, just just one that I'll, you know, remember for the rest of my life. So obviously, Rogers Cup has a very special place for me. So it's sad that that this will be the first year I won't play it in I don't know the last twelve years or so. So it's it's a weird weird feeling, but nothing about this year is normal. So so I think uh, 
yeah, I know. I guess it, it is what it is. But hopefully, Tennis Canada and can rebound and uh, bounce back, and and Rogers Cup will be uh, back in full force next year. In terms of the bubble, you know, when you do arrive in New York, I'm guessing, what what are your expectations from all that you've heard and you've been told about what it's going to be like? I gotta tell you, I'm not sure. I'm I'm, you know, because we'll be basically stuck in a, in a hotel and and on site so we won't be able to venture out into the city so hopefully we have there'll be enough amenities there uh that that's our guests and and the players can can enjoy the time which to my understanding will be the case i've, I've heard that that uh the usca had had uh, gone through um quite a bit of work and spent quite a bit of money to to make sure that we have everything we need to be to be happy there and i think that's that's probably that's the main thing and then the competition is the competition you know that's just that is what it is and that won't change you go, you're going to go and you're going to spend all day getting ready and training and physio and fitness. And then when the time comes, you go out there and compete. But hopefully our time at the hotel will be, uh, we won't be locked down in a way that's a little bit, you know, where it's too un- unenjoyable. I mean, you'd be competing, well, in, in front of very few people as well. How, how is that going to change things, do you think? Oh, that'll be strange for sure. I think we're always used to competing in front of crowds. And uh, I think that that's what makes tennis so exciting and, and so enjoyable for myself. I mean, especially I, I love playing in front of crowds. And so I think it'll, it'll be interesting. I mean, at the end of the day, you're out there, you're on the court, you're trying to win, you're a competitor. So whether there's people watching or not, shouldn't really make that big of a difference in terms of your motivation, because I feel like as soon as you're facing someone one-on-one, you're like a gladiator, right? So you're, you're not just going to fold and be like, oh, there's nobody watching. So I'm just going to not try as hard. Like that won't happen. But uh, but still, I mean, the, the crowd just brings a, a certain amount of energy that, that um, the players really enjoy and, and the fans on TV enjoy watching. And so it'll be interesting to see how that dynamic changes and also which players uh, will benefit from that and which ones won't. You know, it'll affect everybody differently. I think some players maybe don't play as well with, with big crowds and will thrive in an environment with a few spectators. And there'll be others that uh, will be the opposite. So it'll be interesting to see how different players react to that environment, but it'll definitely be a change. And there'll be fewer people on court too with, with the electronic line calling, which uh, the younger guys who, who've played the ATP next gen um, would have experienced that. I was wondering, have, have you spoken with any of those guys about what that's actually like? Or have you played with electronic line calling before? No, I haven't spoken to them and I haven't played with electronic line calling, so that'll be a first one for me. I think it'll be one of those things where it'll feel different and for the first 20, 30 minutes and then you'll just get used to it very quickly, I think, after probably even after three, four games, I think uh, we won't even think about it. So, But uh, yeah, I'll have to see how that feels when I when I get on the court. You are listening to the ATP Tennis Radio Podcast with Canada's Vasek Pospisil. Um, you're 30 um, now, which, look, in tennis terms these days is... is still pretty young um what are you thinking in terms of your tennis career is it still sort of you know spreading out in in front of you or what what, what is your kind of plan if, if you're making one I mean given the way that I was playing the last you know few months before the pandemic um and the fact that you know 30 is not that old for tennis anymore I, I definitely see myself uh going strong for another three four years um at which point obviously I'll have to reassess I'll have to see how how I'm playing how my results are I think definitely. I think the day that I can really uh, look myself in the mirror and be very honest with with myself that that let's say I've I've you know peaked or I've I haven't you know I'm no longer can achieve something that I haven't done in the sport or reach a, a career high ranking or get deeper and in, in, in deep in events I definitely won't just uh, travel and uh, collect paychecks even if they are the, the biggest events in the world I think 
once I, I can't, you know, beat the young guys that are coming up and, and that I think I'll, I'll, I'll retire and I'll get into, into business and, and into, um, you know, all, all the projects that I have planned for post tennis career. So when that is, I'm not sure. Everybody would like to, to think they can play forever, but I'll try to be as objective as possible. And, and then when my time comes, you know, I'll hang up the rackets. There have been so many highs. Um, there's also been injury and adversity in your career, of course, which you've you've had to deal with. Really interested to get your thoughts on the area of mental health and how you've dealt with that. Um, but first, let's just listen to former world number four, Robin Sodling, talking with you and Bethany on a recent episode of Tennis United about that. Well, thanks for coming on and chatting with us a little bit. Emotional health is a big topic. So tell me a little bit about uh, this last emotional post, sharing your story and kind of what made this time seem right to talk about it. There's a famous radio show in Sweden where you speak for 90 minutes about whatever you want. And I've been asked, I think, the last four or five years to do it, uh, but I didn't feel ready. So this year I did it. But then I realized, okay, but the only Swedish people understands. So I just wanted to uh, to put it out myself on my own uh, social media. I just wanted to tell it in my in my own words. You know, the only reason why I decided to speak about it is is because I hope that I could, if I could just help one player or one person, it's uh, it's enough for me. It's good enough. So, Robin, did you struggle with uh, anxiety and mental issues throughout your career? I mean, the thing, it, it feels like it just happened overnight, you know, from one day to another, I was a completely different person. But it happened after I won the tournament uh, in Bostad, 2011, in July. And I remember going back home and I, I remember realizing, okay, I'm not going to play until whatever it was, Toronto or Montreal, and that was a few weeks away. And I felt just like, okay, finally, I can relax a little bit. And it all just came up. And then since then, it was just there, you know, it was it was a terrible time for, for many, many years. And especially in the beginning, because I never experienced anything like that before. And I was just, I didn't have any idea what was happening to me. I feel like as an athlete, we are all expected to show no weakness and to, to fight through things. And what would you recommend to other athletes that sort of deal with the same pressure? I think it's really difficult to have someone to speak to. You know, of course, I had a, a mental coach uh, who trained me, but I was always think, speaking about, or I was always working about performing, you know, how to perform even more. I just needed someone to speak to about, you know, other things, you know, how I felt. To become a professional player, or professional athlete, you know, the sport needs to be a big part of your life. But the danger is, is when it becomes your whole life. Choosing to have an apple, I was thinking, is this good or bad for my tennis? You know, should I go to the cinema today? No, maybe not. I need to sleep nine hours, not eight. Uh, and that was the case for me. You know, it was my basically my whole life. Basically, everything I cared about this was tennis. So, Robin, do you think that stress and anxiety is just like a byproduct of individual sport? No, I think, you know, if you want to become a professional athlete, any sport, not just tennis, you know, you have to train extremely hard, you have to be really focused. But as you said, you need to find that balance because I think that's just a certain amount of stress and training that the body can actually absorb. Robin, thanks for sharing your story. You know, I think it's 
you know, it's a big deal in the sports world, in elite athletes, but especially in tennis. Unfortunately, it's a big problem. I and mean, not only in sport, uh, sports, you know, it's, it's, um, it's a problem these days in today's society. And no matter if you're doing sport or, or, or work with some, something else. So it's something that needs to be uh, spoken about a lot more, I think. Thanks again for joining us. Thank you so much. Nice to meet you guys. Vasek, that view of Robin's about always having someone to speak to, how, is, how important is that for you and, and as a tennis player? It is. It's extremely important. I think that's why, you know, it's, it's uh, as, as I mentioned a little bit earlier in this, in this podcast, you know, it's, it's um, go, going one-on-one and being an individual sport and traveling the world. And, and it can be very, very tough on, on anybody. It doesn't matter how strong, on a, strong of an individual you are, it can take its toll. So it's really important to have that support team with you have someone that you can talk to open up uh, to be it a sports psychologist or or really 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 anyone even a good friend but but it definitely as you saw with with Robin um, it's a real issue that 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 uh, I would say you know maybe even most players deal with so I remember when Robin kind of disappeared there for a while and, and we were we were wondering you know oh like where, where he went I know there were a lot of questions and and uh so it was you know very very interesting and touching to hear him talk about about um the struggles and also you know full credit to him to for opening up opening up uh on that because as i said it's something that i think most players go through to, to some degree and uh either to a lesser lesser extent or maybe some to more severe extent but but everyone goes through certain difficulties for sure and how have you dealt with your injuries and darker times talk to people right i think that's that's the main thing you don't want to hold things inside like as soon as you hold stuff inside it can build bigger and and um it's just a lot harder to kind of get through those those tough moments so for me definitely the injury uh the injury period there was uh, a tough one in 2014 and 2016 as well i mean i i was also uh kind of going through going through a phase where i was just kind of contemplating you know whether i wanted to be a tennis player or what it, you know and and uh yeah so just as I said, just important to, to talk to people, I think, when, when you go through tough times. Talking about mental strength and, and the ability to p- perform at the very highest level. You were also joined recently on Tennis United by two Canadian greats. You, you mentioned them before and it being pretty cool. Um, let's take a listen. Steve Nash, Wayne Gretzky. Thanks for joining, guys. Thank you. Pleasure. Yeah, so uh, I know both of you are actually uh, tennis fans. Both of you are into tennis. Um, so on to talk about you know what got you into into the sport uh, initially and and just what you enjoy about the game we can start with with you Wayne. well for me it was pretty easy i think that uh, i go all the way back to wimbledon when mcenroe and bork were playing those classic matches uh, either semi-finals or finals the emotion uh, how high it was and uh, more importantly the quality of play and uh, how competitive both guys were and so, uh, even if you weren't a huge tennis fan at the time, my goodness, it was so much fun to watch. Uh, there was so much skill involved. There was so much emotion that was involved. For me, they all bring something different and exciting to the table. You know, I think Roger started out being so mesmerizing. He's a great athlete, but he also has so much variety, beautiful strokes. You know, whereas Rafa, I think when he started playing, he thought, well, wow, this guy's just a beast of an athlete and he's mentally as tough as anyone we've seen yeah. maybe in any sport. But as the years go by, you realize, like, I don't know if I've ever seen Rafa miss a volley. 
Like he's just, he's an, he's an artist too. And then you look at Djokovic, the way he moves, his flexibility, his consistency, even in his own right, as good as anyone we've ever seen. So it, it's just fun to see the way that three guys in this era, but going back through the years, how many guys, you know, they find a different way to get it done. And that's what makes the sport beautiful. It's so exciting and that's what it's all about. And that's what we live for. And we sit around and we talk about who is the best team ever and who is the greatest players ever. Nobody has the defined answer. It's what you believe in your heart. The athletes themselves, they just got to go out there and be the best player they can be and then be the best team you can be. And then let other people sit around and debate, okay, who's better? Who do you think, which team, what era? But that's what makes sports fun. We, nobody has a real answer to it. We all just want to try to solve the problem. All right, guys, very last question. What was your favorite match that you've seen live or on TV? I think for me, it would be the Borg-McEnroe match when, when uh, John won his first Wimbledon. You know, watching those two play, I could watch them every single day because A, they were both so great, right? But B, they were so different. One was quiet, one went around his work methodically. The other guy was, let's say, chaotic. Well, Johnny Mac and I play golf and we all get frustrated, we all curse, we all, uh, I don't throw clubs, but the odd guy will throw a club. But even on the golf course, nobody can throw a club and curse like Johnny Mac. <laughs> There's something really special about it, right? <laughs> yeah, um, so for me, it was always watching a Borg McEnroe match. Those memories have faded a little bit for me. I, mean, I was pretty, pretty, pretty young. Uh, but uh, so the one that the one that jumps to mind is is. Uh, it is probably almost cliche, but for a reason is is Federer and Nadal at Wimbledon. Um, yeah. You know, they went on forever and it was dark, but it was unbelievable tennis. Like two guys who really wanted to win and wouldn't let themselves lose. And and it's it's almost like, uh, you know, if there ever was a draw in tennis, that, that was a draw. Well, guys, I'm going to end it there. Uh, this was by far the highlight of my quarantine. <laughs> by far. Guys, thanks so much. Thanks, Stevie. You got it. Be safe, everyone. All right, you too. Thanks, guys. So that's ice hockey legend Wayne Gretzky and basketball great Steve Nash. First of all, what was it like talking to those guys? Oh, incredible. I mean, those are two of my idols, uh, you know, two of the greatest Canadian athletes of all time. Well, athletes in general, anywhere in the world, right? So to be able to, to interview them and speak with them and hear their thoughts, it was kind of one of those pinch me moments for sure and and I've, I've been been friends with with Steve for 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 a little bit now and and he's just such an amazing guy and then I I was you know fortunate to, to get in touch with Wayne who I'd met a few times and also just such a great guy and to hear their their perspectives on on tennis and they just brought I mean as as high level athletes and champions I mean they they brought such a even you know amazing um perspectives on even on you know on, on tennis which was really cool to to see in the next generation coming up. And um, so it was just such a cool interview. It was definitely the highlight of my, of my tennis United experience. Uh, I guess, you know, being in a, a Canadian, but I think for anybody that would be a, a highlight for sure to speak to such uh, legends of sporting legends. Inspiration personified. I'm sure just one final question. Um, to, talking of idols and mentors, just wondering whether you'd single out any, one piece of advice you've been given um, in all this time? Tough question to answer because I just feel like you learn so much along the way in tennis. And I, there's so many things I would have done differently uh, with the information that I have now, you know, back when I was starting up as a junior. So 
I mean, I could I could get into a one hour uh, monologue on that, which I'm not going to do. But obviously, no regrets in anything that I did because these are you know I I feel like I did the best that I could with the information that I had and 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 uh, made the best decisions possible at the time. Uh, I would just say that again, the, the one thing where, and again, this this just goes back to what my dad taught me, and this is what I tell juniors and anybody all the time is just like whenever you're doing something and spending time on the court or in whatever it is that you're doing is is just is to have purpose and and try to get better, and that's just as relevant today as it was to me when I was when I was a kid when my dad taught me this. So I would say that's just the number one the number one thing that I that I'll take to the grave. Vasek. <laughs> It's been a real pleasure. Thank you so much for your time. And uh, we wish you all the best when you get back out on, on the court as well. Hey, yeah, no problem. Thanks. Thanks for having me, guys. What a pleasure it was to speak with Vasek Pospisil. Let us know your thoughts. Share the podcast with a friend who you think might enjoy it. And remember, you can also leave us a review on Apple Podcasts if that's where you're listening. Next week, we'll be back in the thick of the action at Flushing Meadows as the Cincinnati Masters kicks off the three-week bubble at the Billie Jean King Tennis Centre. And just a reminder that our 24-7 radio channel will bring you live ball-by-ball commentary of the Western and Southern Open, and then we'll simulcast the US Open, courtesy of US Open Radio. And the live coverage doesn't stop there. After the US Open, it's straight on to Rome and more ATP Masters 1000 action. And then we'll simulcast Roland Garros, courtesy of Radio Roland Garros, before finally bringing you live commentary from the Paris Masters and the Nito ATP Finals in November. We very much hope you can join us for lots of live tennis. And of course, come back next week for another podcast. I'm Seb Lozier. Thanks for listening. If you like this podcast, please search the iTunes store for ATP Tennis Radio to leave a review. review.